Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Native American leaders have joined Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call in asking for more action to be taken on missing and murdered indigenous women, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. President Joe Biden signed an executive order last week to create a strategy strategy to prevent violence against Native Americans within 240 days. More than four out of five indigenous women have experienced violence in their lifetime. One major issue tribes face is that not all tribes have access to federal databases, with Wisconsin tribes relying on county partners to enter data on their behalf. Justine Rufus, co-chair of the state's task force on missing and murdered indigenous women, says that the order is long overdue and is a significant step towards meaningful action. The Capital Times reports that the Madison Metropolitan School District Board has approved a new bonus pay opportunity for some of its staff. Special education, school security, and education assistants that show up at work to work at least 85% of their workdays will receive an increased end-of-the-month bonus of $250. Nurses and nursing assistants who work an average of 20 hours per week will receive a $500 bonus. The board also unanimously approved increases to daily and long-term substitute pay. The district says the bonuses are, quote, a short-term fix to staffing issues within the district. Teachers will also receive additional hourly pay for each class taught during that teacher's prep time. Do you know what to do in a disaster? Dane County leadership will be holding public listening sessions next week, Tuesday and Wednesday, (coughs) to hear your concerns about natural hazards and disasters. The sessions come as the county is updating its natural hazard mitigation plan. That framework outlines the implementation of specific programs and policies to reduce the impact of natural hazards on people, structures, and the natural environment. Extreme weather events can strike at a moment's notice, says Dane County Executive Joe Parisi, who announced the listening sessions today. For more information, head to countyofdane.com. A coalition of housing advocates are calling on the city of Madison to postpone the eviction of unhoused individuals currently at Rindall Park, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The coalition, called Community Action Against Rindall Eviction, says the city's plan for housing alternatives does not meet the needs of the dozens of people living in Rindall Park. That says the city's plans do not allow camping at the park after December 6th. The current city plan includes several alternatives to camping at Rindall. The first is an urban campground on Dairy Drive to house up to 30 individuals and connect them with permanent housing. The second involves a block of hotel rooms at a nearby hotel with support services from local agency-focused counseling. The third is continued support of the overnight men's shelter operated by Porchlight. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway responded to housing advocates today in a blog post saying that these three alternatives are enough to end the use of the Rindall Park as an encampment. But, says Pearl Foster, a member of the Rindall Rindall Park encampment, quote, Forcing people into the woods, under bridges, and in corners of parking garages is more dangerous than keeping Rindall Park open. Madison Police Lieutenant Reginald Patterson has resigned from the Madison Police Department, per a press release from the MPD this afternoon. 
Earlier this fall, Patterson was filmed in a bystander video uh, in which he appeared to be having intimate relations in an unmarked squad car. The MPD conducted an investigation and found that Patterson violated departmental policies. The Dane County Sheriff's Office also investigated and found that there was no crime committed. Patterson has been on paid leave since mid-September. He worked in the Madison Police Department for 15 years. With winter coming on, we're reminded that it's flu season. No, not that flu. The flu in your fireplace. Remember to keep your flus and dampers open when you have an active fire. Failure to do so can result in unsafe carbon monoxide levels in your house. The Madison Fire Department is putting out, so to speak, the reminder after responding to a pair of carbon monoxide incidents this past week. That's according to reporting from the Wisconsin State Journal. And now today's COVID numbers. The average number of confirmed cases rose again today, bringing the current seven-day average to 3,148. 11.3% of tests came back positive. There have been 29 confirmed deaths in the last week from the virus as well. This brings the total number of COVID deaths in Wisconsin to 8,944. Here in Dane County, a total of 1,269 confirmed cases have been recorded over the last week. And now on to today's top stories. Immigration rights advocates demonstrated in Madison today, keeping the pressure on members of Wisconsin's congressional delegation to include a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. That comes as the rules referee in the U.S. Senate indicates that they would not rule out provisions for temporary work permits for undocumented immigrants in the more than trillion dollar Build Back Better bill. WORT Greg Jabosky was at today's local action and has this report. This morning, the day before Thanksgiving, some representatives of the Milwaukee-based immigrants' rights organization Voces de la Frontera met on Capitol Square by the Mifflin Street office of U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin. It was part of Thanksgiving Without Immigrants, an action by Voces de la Frontera at Baldwin's Madison and Green Bay offices and at the Milwaukee offices of Representative Gwen Moore, both Democrats, where handmade Thanksgiving cards made by children of immigrant essential workers were delivered or, as was necessary in Madison, taped to the street-level door. Nindik Figueroa, an essential worker organizer for Voces de la Frontera, explained why she was there this morning. Voces is here at the office of Senator Tammy Baldwin, delivering a message from her to support pathways citizenship for essential workers and all immigrants in general. Now is the time to support the pathway citizenship for all. We delivered to Senator Tammy Baldwin some letters from kids and parents. According to Anna Dvorak, communications director for Voces de la Frontera, they had asked to deliver the message to the senator or to a staff person, but had been told no one would be available. However, there appears to be some movement on immigrants' rights in Washington. Until then, it appeared that immigrants might get nothing in the Build Back Better legislation package. Dvorak, who was at the action this morning, explains what she understands as part of the potential deal. Last night, we heard reports of, there was basically a leak that the parliamentarian for the Senate met with a group of members of the Senate and basically gave the green light to work permits. 
for an estimated like 7.1 million immigrants in this country. That's that's good news in a way, but it's also not what we've been calling for as Voces and as a national immigrant rights movement. We've been calling for citizenship. Dvorak related some details of what had been told about the proposal. So it would include temporary status and a work permit for five years, renewable one time for another five years, so it's 10 years total. It would protect people who are eligible from deportation. It would give people the ability to apply to travel abroad and access a driver's license. Some people would be eligible for some federal and state public benefits, and then other protections would be included in it. But Dvorak points out that even this limited package will cover less than two-thirds of precarious immigrants currently in the U.S. You have to have been in the United States before 2010. So anyone who came after that is going to be ineligible. And then also, it won't cover people with certain offenses, having, you know, a record of some sort. There's 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country, so it's just 7.1 of the 11 million who would qualify for work permits, not even citizenship. So, yeah, it's not what we wanted at all, and that's why we're going to keep fighting. Larissa Joanna is a Madison-area restaurant worker and a board member of Voces de la Frontera Acción, the political arm of the organization. She was there with her two children, one of whom, five-year-old Jojo, taped her hand-colored message to the office building's door. While pleased that it appears that millions may get work permits, Larissa promised that Voces will not stop until the goal of a path to citizenship for all immigrant workers in the U.S. is reached. We are absolutely going to continue fight for a path to citizenship for millions, including the DREAMers, the TPS recipients, and the rest of the undocumented workers that are left out in this package. We are not done here. This is something and a pathway to justice, but we are not where we want to be yet. We need to make sure that we are advocating together, fighting together, coming together as all oppressed communities, LGBTQ, black, brown. This is for everyone who is suffering oppression from people refusing to do their job. That was Larissa Joanna of Voces de la Frontera, who today, with her colleagues and her children, was trying to deliver a message at the Madison offices of Senator Tammy Baldwin. Senator Baldwin's office did not respond for comment by airtime. This is Greg Jabosky for WORT News. Eviction rates in Wisconsin are on the rise, with over 14,000 eviction notices being served this year so far. With the federal eviction moratorium ending earlier in August, a group of state legislators are looking to address the issue. A new package of bills was introduced to the state legislature last week, which looks to address unfair housing practices. The package, introduced by Representative Jimmy Anderson of Fitchburg, Representative Francesca Hong of Madison, and Representative Supreme Moore Omukunde of Milwaukee, aims to protect Wisconsin tenants from unfair practices. The first bill would allow tenants to reduce or even withhold rent if their property is damaged or if their property could, could cause harm to them. Representative Anderson said that it is important to provide safe living conditions to all Wisconsin residents. So oftentimes there were people that were living in, in, in uh, conditions that were illegal, technically, and uh, still being required to pay rent for that property. We decided that that wasn't okay and we should be able to provide uh, tenants more um, control over that matter. The second bill would create a grant program to help fund attorneys for underprivileged tenants who believe that they have been wrongly evicted. These grants would only be available for tenants who fall at or below 200% below the poverty line. 
For a single individual, that would be a yearly income of just over $25,000. The third and final bill in the package would prohibit landlords from discrimination based on someone's citizenship or immigration status. Under the Federal Fair Housing Act, tenants cannot be discriminated against regardless of their immigration status for things such as race, gender, or national origin. Current law does not explicitly include discrimination against immigration status or citizenship itself, however. The new bill would guarantee that people would not be discriminated against due to their immigration status or citizenship, regardless of any changes that would be made to the Fair Housing Act. Representative Hong says that all three bills work together to ensure that people do not lose their homes. We know that those who are housed and are facing evictions, having the tools to fight those is important. It's always, it's much more difficult to find housing for folks, especially in the city of Madison, where we are facing systemic racism and redlining that has historically marginalized folks from accessing more affordable housing with the current low with high occupancy rates that development continues to be prioritizing those uh, with higher incomes. And so these bills are important because it, it protects those who are currently housed and ensures that those who are facing evictions have tools to be able to fight it. The package is currently circulating for co-sponsorship and is slated to be introduced to the state assembly soon. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. The time is now 6.19 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. A practice known as white bagging in which health insurance companies require certain medications to be purchased through specialty pharmacies has been growing across Wisconsin. A recent survey by healthcare consulting firm Vizient Inc. found that 83% of hospitals that had these medications delivered said the medications did not arrive on time, and 66% said that the wrong dose of those medications had been received. Producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Joanne Allig of the Wisconsin Hospital Association about the practice and a new law looking to address the issue. Getting the medication you need is important, as is getting it on time. A practice called white bagging has made this difficult in hospitals across the state. Instituted by insurance agencies, the practice has affected many residents across the state of Wisconsin. And Corrine Holmes of Eau Claire is one of them and has lent her name to a new bill looking to end the practice. With me today is Joanne Allig. Joanne is the Vice President of Public Policy at the Wisconsin Hospital Association. Joanne, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks, Nate. I appreciate being here. So just to start things off, can you tell me a little bit about what white bagging is? Sure. So white bagging, as you said in your great introduction, is a practice by insurance companies. And it's proliferated really here in Wisconsin probably in the last 12 to 18 months. So it really affects patients who have cancer or multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis or any host of conditions where the patient needs to go into their provider, go into their hospital, go into the cancer center and have a medication infused. 
so through an IV. And so it means that the patient can't administer the medication themselves. And so that's really the kinds of, of medications and drugs that we're talking about. And what happens is currently the patient would go to their provider, the provider would take their weight, would look at their conditions for the day, might do some labs, and then they would get the drug from their pharmacy. Often at a hospital, the pharmacy is right there. They would get the drug dispensed from their pharmacy and um, would infuse it during the patient's scheduled appointment. What happens then under white bagging is that insurance companies are saying to the provider, well, you can't use your medication. We need you to use the medication from our pharmacy. And our pharmacy will mail you the medication, and then you can administer it to your patient. And there are a whole host of safety and logistical issues involved in that, including that often treatment gets delayed because the medication just doesn't arrive on time. But there are many other safety concerns around that practice. You mentioned a little bit earlier that this started approximately within the last 18 months. Is there anything that sort of kicked off this practice here in Wisconsin? Or how did, how did this practice get started so recently here? Yeah, so some um, insurers really just, I think it was a practice that was happening across the country and really just kind of started to proliferate here in the state where we saw a few insurers actually mandate these policies really kind of in the middle of of the year. So why do insurance agencies feel the need to implement white bagging? Yeah, it's it's a great question and I I do get asked that. Um, I think that um, they will say that it's about cost. And we can all agree, I think, that specialty drugs, these therapies, can be expensive. But really, the risk to patient safety, the delays in treatment, I guess I really don't fully understand why this has to be the answer. So can you, shifting over a little bit, can you just tell me a little bit about what the Wisconsin Hospital Association is? Sure. So... Wisconsin Hospital Association, so we are an advocacy association, and all of the hospitals in the state are our members, and our mission is really to advocate on behalf of those hospitals to help ensure that they can provide the best patient care and make sure that they can help support the health of their communities. So what is the association, if you're sort of standing for all the hospitals in Wisconsin, what are you proposing to address this issue? So Kareen's Law um, is, is legislation that currently has 82 state legislators that are co-sponsors. And we support this legislation because what it would do is it would actually prohibit insurers from mandating this practice of white bagging. It would prohibit insurers from really saying that the pharmacy, that the hospital, or that their provider is getting their drugs from is suddenly out of network when before it was in network. So it really would just prohibit this practice. Now, I mentioned it briefly at the beginning of this interview, but Corrine's Law, where did that name come from? Yeah, so Corrine Holmes, she is an amazing woman from Eau Claire, and she was eight months pregnant, 
last January when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she needed to start treatment right away. So they actually, she was induced and she had her baby. And I think it was six days later, she started her her chemotherapy treatment. And she was getting infusions about every three weeks. And then in July, her insurance company implemented this new white bagging practice. So her insurance company said, you can you have to now get your drugs from our specialty pharmacy. And the hospital, again, I've been mentioning sort of the patient safety issues and the issues with the medications not arriving in time. So when when white bagging happens, because of all of those issues, some hospitals say, well, we're just not going to accept white bag drugs. And what happened to Kareem then was she was faced with this awful choice of, either having to find a whole new care team or pay out of network for her specialty drugs. And in her own words, she would say it was never about the money. It was really about we wanted to continue with this care team and and these people that I trusted who were taking care of me. So she, luckily, her, her care team was fabulous. They worked many hours and were able to get through the insurance company a 90-day kind of stay, if you will. So she was able to continue her treatment for 90 days, but she really felt very strongly that this is a practice that really shouldn't, shouldn't happen in Wisconsin. And so, so the legislation is really named after her. So Kareen's law, which I believe you briefly mentioned earlier, it's a bipartisan bill. It's being put in front of the state legislature to prohibit the practice of white bagging. Are there any folks who are opposed to regulating this practice? Well, of course, the insurance companies are opposed to it. So uh, so we know that, that they are strongly opposed and will be, will be fighting the legislation. Is there anything either for or against regulating white bagging on a federal level? Well, you know, it's, that's a great question. I know that many other states are um, have been looking at this issue as well. And so if there was something that could be done at the federal level, I think that would be great. Often insurance regulations, though, fall, does fall to, to the state. But if there was something at the federal level that could be done, I think we'd be supportive of that as well. Do you know if any other states have officially passed anything regulating white bagging? Yeah, so uh, uh, Louisiana passed a law about, uh, gosh, I want to say it's about a year ago, but maybe it was less than a year. Um, and I know Texas had passed some type of regulation around some of these drugs. And I believe there are a few other states that have been working on it as well. Joanne, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us today? Yes, yeah, thanks, Nate. No, I just really appreciate your sort of raising raising these questions and, and having this interview. Really would hope that your listeners would go out to www.patientsfirstwisconsin.com and you can see our stories. You can learn more about white bagging and and its impact and really sort of understand the issue and help support the issue. I've been speaking with Joanne Allig, Vice President of Public Policy at the Wisconsin Hospital Association. Joanne, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you.
You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We shine a light on the legality of solar leasing. We get the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves. And Madison in the 60s reflects back to a murder most foul. Well, first we'll take another break and check in on world headlines from the BBC. Stay tuned. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. At an average cost of $18,000 for a rooftop installation, getting into solar power can be a pricey proposition. Third-party leasing companies can help bridge that cost by allowing landowners to lease solar panels and pay a monthly fee to use the energy they generate. In Wisconsin, however, the legality of these solar lease or power purchase agreements is murky. For more on the issue, 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Carrie Leiderson. Leiderson is a teacher at the Metal School of Journalism at Northwestern University and an energy reporter for Midwest Energy News. Carrie Leiderson from the Energy News Network joined us now with Thank you. Nice to be here. So let's tell us, how does a solar lease work? Well, basically, if someone, um, a small business or a resident has solar panels um, on their roof or in some cases ground mounted on their property, um, the most straightforward way to do that might be for them just to buy the solar panels. Um, But that is, as you said, a pretty steep upfront cost. So a way that makes it just much more viable for a lot of people and businesses is to do either a lease or PPA on power purchase agreement, as you described. And that would basically just be where a solar developer, um, companies that do this as a big part of their business model, um, actually owns the solar panels that are on that property. And the um, person who lives in or, or owns that property just gets the energy, um, either gets all of the energy and pays a, a set amount of lease um, each month for the solar panels, or they essentially buy the energy from the solar developer in that power purchase agreement, which um, can be a set price or it can be some kind of formula that they've worked out. Um, and it's really, uh, and then it's also a really important arrangement for a nonprofit entities like churches or some hospitals or schools or government buildings because um, we still have fairly robust federal tax credits for solar, but if you're a nonprofit that doesn't pay taxes, um, that doesn't really benefit you. But in one of these third-party arrangements, um, the company can reap the, the tax credit, the tax benefit, and then they pass that savings on to the um, person or the business or the nonprofit, well, in this case, the nonprofit that's actually getting the energy. Now, what makes Wisconsin an outlier when it comes to solar leases or power purchase agreements compared with other states? Well, most states, um, at least most states where solar is growing and prevalent, um, these third-party arrangements are really common and in most cases are explicitly legal or there's just never been any problem with them. So um, solar solar developers and customers are eager to do them. Um, In Wisconsin, they're definitely not 
illegal, but utilities, most prominently we energies in Milwaukee have been really, the Milwaukee area, um, have been really hostile to these arrangements. And um, we energies has refused to connect when you have solar um, other than, you know, the rare cases, usually in rural areas where people are off the grid and depend only on their solar. Um, the uh, We Energies in Wisconsin has um, refused to connect such uh, solar installations, third-party owned ones, to the grid. And um, there's been, We Energies says that they're illegal. It says that uh, it represents a, a solar developer acting as a public utility, which in a state like Wisconsin, only the um, regulated utilities have the right to fill that role. Uh, but in most states around the country, you know, if you're only, if you're leasing a solar panel or you're only buying um, power, only one, you know, person at this residence or church is buying power from that um, solar developer, you know, that's not considered a utility. Uh, so basically, We Energies has managed to stir up this uncertainty about it in Wisconsin, and solar developers and customers are nervous that if they do one of these arrangements, the utility won't connect them to the grid, in which case it'll be basically useless, and um, they're worried, uh, you know, court proceedings might ensue. And so far, neither the State Regulatory Commission nor the legislature um, have agreed to just, you know, affirm or the courts have affirmed that like, yes, this is legal. It's not illegal. It's fine. But, um, that murkiness, you know, that uncertainty has meant that it's just not happening in Wisconsin. Now, what would Senator Cowles and Representative Cabral Cavera's legislation do? Yeah, so the bill, um, you know, it was just introduced, uh, I think, a week or so ago on the 11th. Um, so it's just a, a brief bill as of now. The details, I'm sure, will be hashed out more. But it basically says that um, there's an exemption to defining an entity as a utility if they're just selling power to um one person or one entity on the site that that person or entity who's buying the power <laughs> owns. So it covers power purchase agreements and leases and explicitly says, you know, if you have one of these arrangements, you're not a utility, which is um, what uh, solar developers and would-be customers and clean power advocates have been asking for all along, just a very simple clear statement that says a solar developer is not a utility if they're selling power to, you know, just this one customer on the site of the installation. And who's the Wisconsin Conservative Energy Forum, and what's their position on this bill? Yeah, they've been really backing um, both of these bills I mentioned and solar in general, and um, it's one of their main issues and, and reasons for existing, and um, they, uh, those uh points I just mentioned are things that, you know, along going back a, a, a good amount of time, they've been saying this just makes sense for um, for conservatives and for people who hold these values in Wisconsin. So it seems that they've really been um, the important leaders, you know, pushing, helping people understand this and helping people understand the value of solar and, uh, and then also working with environmental groups or clean energy groups who, you know, haven't, um, especially in these polarized times, uh, haven't always worked with conservatives or vice versa. Now, utility companies have already come out in opposition. What's their argument against it? Yeah, well, they say, um, you know, that same argument that We Energies has made, and We Energies actually refused to connect a, a big installation um, in the city of 
Milwaukee, which resulted in an ongoing court case. Um, that's actually not ongoing, but had resulted in a court case. Uh, so anyway, they say that, you know, it's their right to be the utilities that provide power to the public. And if a solar developer comes and does this, um, these power purchase agreements or even leases, some utilities don't oppose leases so much, but the two things get lumped together. So, you know, their position is that it's infringing on their business right if other solar developers are out there um, selling power to people. And then they also, a, a lot of utilities want to do versions. This relates a little bit more to the community solar piece, but they just want, you know, utilities are increasingly doing solar themselves. Um, so I think they just want to keep a, a lock on the solar market. And, you know, and they also, I mean, they don't say this. Actually, they do say this additional point as part of their rationale. Um, the more people that get solar and their energy bills go down, utilities around the country claim that that unfairly shifts the burden to customers that don't have solar who are paying, um, they say people with solar aren't paying their fair share to keep up the grid since their utility bills are lower. So that's an argument that utilities are making, but just as an argument that doesn't really make sense and, and isn't really fair. And there's a lot of ways around that, a lot of ways that you can make sure that everyone's paying their fair share to keep up the grid, whether they have solar or not. Well, you just mentioned that there's two parts to your utility bill. In Wisconsin, there's one that's for maintenance of the grid and the other for the energy that you consume. So it would seem like that maintenance portion of the of the uh, of your bill would cover those fixed costs, wouldn't they? Exactly. I mean, that is the whole point. Um, that can raise other issues because sometimes that charge, that fixed charge, gets raised disproportionately, and that really hurts um, low-income people more because, you know, they can't reduce that charge even if they conserve energy. So, you know, there's a whole can of worms there as well. But um, the bottom line is, uh, you know, utilities are still making tons of money, and there's been no evidence at all that, you know, they're in danger of not being able to keep up the grid. Now, yeah. we've, we, we've seen in some other states, uh, California Texas um, you know, issues with uh, blackouts and, and electrical capacity. Is that is there any risk of uh, degradation of the sort of grid and, and running into the kind of situations that we see in, in places like California and Texas uh, if um, we do go to a more decentralized energy pr- provision system? Yeah, it's actually exactly the opposite. A more decentralized system is the, a big part of the solution to those outages because those blackouts happen, you know, in part because of the centralized energy system where where one power plant going down or an outage on, you know, one part of the grid has a massive ripple effect. So um, having solar, you know, for any given house or business, um, having solar, if you have battery storage, means you have that energy if there is a larger blackout. And then having decentralized energy actually makes the grid much stronger and much more resilient. Um, you know, grid upgrades are also needed to make the grid sort of smarter and more flexible, but um, those upgrades are happening. So more distributed solar, even if someone doesn't have solar, their grid and their service is in the long term going to be better if there's more distributed solar out there on the system. All right. We've been speaking with Carrie Leiderson of the Energy News Network. Thank you so much for joining us on the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Thank you so much. Have a great day. It's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure. 
Well, we ended up being a bit warmer this past week, at least at intervals than I was expecting. You might remember that last Wednesday when we hit 52 degrees, I said I didn't know when we'd get that warm again. But in the event, we hit 52 on Sunday. And then again today, though, each time we dropped a full 20 degrees on the following day. So those warm-ups were uh, short-lived. Incidentally, if you've put two two together there, you can determine that we are going to drop another 20 degrees again tomorrow. This bobbing up and down in our temperatures is due to the rapid passage of waves in the upper air across the continent, something that's quite apparent if you have a look at either of the water vapor images that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage and the featured graphics. The water vapor of the U.S. with the surface pressure fields overlaid on it is particularly useful in visualizing what's going on. It shows the past couple of days of activity in the upper troposphere. So you can see yesterday's upper trough with its cool air exiting eastward, followed by today's upper ridge with its warm air and a gush of upper-level moisture off the Pacific Ocean via Baja, which produced those high clouds that we saw overhead followed in turn by the coming uh, upper trough, which is already pushing at us from the central plains. But in addition to those upper features moving briskly from west to east, you can also see the outlines of the surface high-pressure cells, the surface air masses traversing from northwest to southeast with today's co- or yesterday's cold air mass moving from about St. Louis down across the Carolinas and off-coast while another high-pressure cell with a central pressure of uh, 1032 millibars pushes on screen from Saskatchewan and down across the Dakotas towards us. Uh, The Arctic air with that is going to start flowing in here in another uh, four or five hours or so. Like the past couple of air mass changes, this one tonight is going to have little in the way of significant moisture attendant to it, though it appears from prognostic soundings for tomorrow morning that we might have just enough saturation between about 1,500 and 6,000 feet for a, a few hours in there to maybe crank out a flurry or two. Though strong subsidence and incoming bone-dry Arctic air should eventually uh, clear out the skies as we go through the day. The following air mass change, once again, just a scant 48 hours after that on Saturday, may finally be accompanied by a more organized swirl of low pressure than we've seen in a while. Uh, The system is not likely to produce a whole lot of precipitation since it's going to be dropping through Alberta Clipper style from the northwest, but we may get some kind of sprinkly rains or light mixed precipitation as we get on later Saturday afternoon. It looks like this regime of two to three day temperature bumps up and down is going to continue into next week, although it appears we might see a more extended warm up perhaps later next week as what still appears to be a wider scale pattern change starts to take shape at that time. Uh, Still no terribly good idea of what that might look like, but I'm guessing that it may uh, have some uh, more active weather in store for us at that point. So stay tuned. Back to tonight, though, high and mid-level overcast will eventually be joined by lower clouds as we approach morning. But in the meantime, the temperatures will slide through the 40s and then the 30s as westerly winds veer northwesterly and begin to come up after midnight or so, coming up to 12 to 18 miles per hour by the time we get on towards tomorrow morning. Low clouds may thicken for a time uh, early morning for a passing snow shower or two, but otherwise clouds will begin to break and uh, lift out by midday. Temperatures will struggle to rise out of the low 30s tomorrow, given a strong cold air advection on northwesterly winds up at 12 to 20 miles per hour. Uh, That incoming Arctic air will be dropping the dew point temperatures down into the single digits by evening, so very, very dry air coming in. 
Temperatures will drop to the mid or upper teens overnight tomorrow under clear skies, and uh, winds will diminish to about 48 miles per hour by Friday morning. Friday, you'll see an increase in clouds during the midday and afternoon hours. That'll hold temperatures to the low 30s again, despite uh, backing southwesterly winds on Friday, up, coming up to 3 to 7 miles per hour. We'll see passing clouds continue through the overnight with a low temperature in the upper 20s on lighter southerly winds. And Saturday, we'll see the uh, re-thickening of the overcast with a chance of uh, light rain or possibly some light mixed precipitation in the afternoon hours. Temperatures will reach the uh, mid or perhaps the upper 30s with southerly winds veering west and northwest and increasing overnight as we go into Sunday. Sunday is likely to be a shade cooler, but we'll start warming again then already as we go into Monday. Uh, at the moment, uh, down here at the station on Bedford Street, the, do the temperature is 44 degrees. The dew point temperature is 34. Uh, passing uh, mid-level clouds, actually a mid-level overcast at this point, up at about 14,000 feet. Winds are out of the southwest at 5 miles per hour, and the barometer's been uh, rising fairly steadily for several hours now, up at 29.89 inches of mercury. now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to the last week of November 1963 and a murder most foul. Stu Levitan has this edition of Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s The Assassination of President Kennedy Wednesday, November 20th President John F. Kennedy begins his last full day in the White House with a Western Union telegram to UW-Madison President Fred Harvey Harrington congratulating Dr. Harry Weissman and his colleagues at the UW Orthopedic Children's Hospital on that afternoon's dedication of the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Memorial Laboratories, funded in part by a quarter-million-dollar grant from the Kennedy Foundation. In a six-hour visit that afternoon, Senator Edward M. Kennedy and brother-in-law R. Sergeant Shriver tour the laboratories, attend a scientific symposium, and hold a dedicatory luncheon at the Memorial Union. Friday, November 22nd. In downtown Dallas, two Madison men see President Kennedy in his last few minutes alive. Army Lieutenant Bruce Kepke, 22, UW Class 1963, is waiting for his train home to Nakoma from Oklahoma as he watches the motorcade pass 15 feet from him, a few hundred yards from Dealey Plaza. At 12.29, he hears three pops, which he thinks are firecrackers. George E. Holmes, vice president of Holmes Tire and Supply, is concluding a week of local meetings. He watches from a nearby storefront. 
When his meeting breaks for lunch, he eats at a restaurant near Parkland Hospital, where Kennedy dies. David Marinus, 14, is in his ninth grade homeroom at West Junior High School when Principal Homer Winger makes the announcement. Marinus is stunned at how many of his classmates call Kennedy a commie who got what he deserved. Things are different at Franklin School on Lakeside Street. When they wheel a big TV set into 12-year-old Mona Adams's 7th grade classroom, everyone is crying, even the boys. UW professor Gunnar Johansson is also crying as he ends his chamber music class to play Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata with violinist Rudolf Kolisch. At 2 p.m., the UW football team leaves Madison by chartered plane for Minneapolis. UW President Harrington wants the game postponed or canceled, but Minnesota regents say it should be played, quote, because of President Kennedy's deep interest in physical fitness and athletics. By the time the team lands, the Minnesota president has agreed with Harrington, and the game is set for Thanksgiving morning. In the Capitol Rotunda, 24-year-old Owen Rearson, out on bail from his September 23rd disorderly conduct arrest for disrupting a civil rights demonstration after the bombing deaths of four black girls in a Birmingham Sunday school, is loudly celebrating the assassination as, quote, a miracle for the white race. Wearing a swastika armband and giving the Nazi salute, Rearson tries to distribute racist and anti-Semitic literature before he's again arrested for disorderly conduct. By evening, a hard rain is falling. It's cloudy and damp as Madison mourns on Monday the 25th, the day of the president's funeral, with religious and memorial services from morning to night. Except for local banks and financial institutions, almost every store and business is closed, at least until early afternoon. The Gisholt machine plant is open, but non-supervisory workers can take the day off. Oscar Mayer workers observe a moment of silence at 11 a.m., even the bars of the Dane County Tavern League shut down from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. The bad guys also take a break. From 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., during the funeral and burial, there are only six police calls. Fifty is the norm for that period. Police and firemen later learn they are excluded from Mayor Henry Reynolds' executive order granting compensatory time off for the few city employees required to work. At 8 a.m., a flag-draped catafalque stands before the altar of St. Raphael's Cathedral as more than 800 pack the pews and aisles for a pontifical requiem low mass, the same service scheduled for St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington. At 2.34, seeking solace for one martyr in the shadow of another, a silent crowd of 10,000 ascends Bascom Hill for the state's official service at Lincoln Terrace. Carillon bells ring, somber and slow, till muffled drums herald the military ROTC units. The university choir sings hymns, and Ray Dvorak leads the university marching band in the Star-Spangled Banner. An honor guard stands as UW President Harrington and Regents President Jacob Friedrich mourn what was lost. As many of his fellow students weep openly, Wisconsin Student Association President William J. Campbell calls on them, quote, to take at least one stride toward becoming a profile in courage in support of civil rights and the poor. Then the benediction taps and the drums beat retreat. The crowd quietly melts away, just in time for the 5 p.m. reopenings of the four downtown movie theaters. Although city offices are closed all day, 
public hearings have been noticed, so the plan commission meets that evening. Ignoring strong objections from neighbors and area alder George Elder, the panel approves a 26-unit apartment building at 1033 Spate Street. At 8 p.m., more than 1,500 overflow the First Congregational Church on Breeze Terrace for a multi-denominational service convened by the Madison Area Council of Churches. Something is wrong in our land, the Reverend Alfred Swan declares. We rely too much on violence. Too many weapons are flashed before the eyes of the young. Protestant and Jewish clergy read scripture and lead prayers, and many in the crowd cry as they sing America the Beautiful. On Tuesday, November 26th, Dane County Judge William Bensley tells Rearson he, quote, may be deranged and orders him to the Central State Hospital Wapan for a 60-day mental examination. Rearson says he's entitled to his political beliefs and that the rotunda crowd should be charged for threatening him. Attorney Wayne Martin quits representing Rearson because, quote, he is now personally repulsive to me. And Wisconsin officials now discover Rearson is on parole from a robbery conviction in California. That night, many campus activities are still canceled or postponed, but some groups do meet, including the Philosophy, Chess, and Hoofers Clubs. The Young Socialist Alliance presents a speech by National Chairman Dick Roberts and a discussion of, quote, the United States war machine under the administration of President Kennedy. On February 18, 1964, Wisconsin officials extradite Rearson to California, where he resumes serving his sentence at San Quentin for second-degree robbery. Rearson dies in Washington, D.C. in 1986 at age 46, the same age as President Kennedy on November 22, 1963. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT News Team. I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WRT's live local news at 6. Your reporter this evening was Greg Jaboski. Special thanks to feature contributors Stu Levitan and 8 o'clock buzz host Brian Standing. Chuck Kademan engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggehaupt produced it. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. <laughs>